Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana, and I am joined by my regular co-host for the 20th Century Movie Club by my good friend, Mike Scott. Mike, how are you today? I am well, sir. Thank you. Excellent. Happy to have you back. And we have a returning guest to the 20th Century Movie Club. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back our good friend, Dylan Bruff. Dylan, how are you today, gentlemen, sir? I'm well. How are you? We are doing it's good great. good to be back. Great to have you back. So this is volume 19. We are one episode away from our 10 episode recap. But uh, for this episode, like, like we've done with pretty much all of the teens in the uh, in the 20th Century Movie Club, we have selected themes. So when we have a special guest on, we have asked them to come up with the theme for this episode. So Dylan, will you please tell the listeners your theme for this episode? Okay, this one's pretty narrow, but I wanted to get geared up for the uh, season that's coming up with my favorite time of year Halloween's coming up you know I know we're a little bit early but I wanted to go with a kind of a narrow theme here of the paranormal but not necessarily scary slash horror I love it I love it this is this one is really going to be intriguing for me so all right so Dylan since you are our guest uh, you get to make the first pick so what is your first selection for volume 19 of the 20th century movie club I want Mike to guess. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna guess it's Ghostbusters. <laughs> but yeah, uh, so I I had to choose it, guys. I mean, we gotta we gotta cover it, and I'm so I'm sorry, you know, if I need to apologize, I'm sorry. But um, I just think it holds such a special place in everyone's heart that is a fan of not just comedy but the paranormal. You know, it's the brainchild of Dan Aykroyd. And Harold Ramis, uh, starring Bill Murray, directed by Ivan Reitman. And uh, it certainly doesn't hurt if it's a comedy about professional ghost exterminators battling other dimensional threats against New York City. So the movie was pretty... I, I saw this, I think I was like 10 years old. And it's one of those movies that's kind of... I don't know why I can't... I can imagine most people would be able to remember when they first saw Ghostbusters. But I can't exactly remember. I'm pretty sure... Because it came out, it actually came out like the weekend I was born. So I think I saw it on TV. It was one of those, uh, HBO or something like that, or a cable. But it was pretty hyped at the time it came out, considering Murray, Aykroyd, and Ramis were already riding the wave of their previous successes. But it's withstood the test of time, and it's remained a classic among audiences of all ages, even now, so much so that Reitman's son is helming a linear sequel uh, with many of the original cast, which I'm so excited for. And so much so that uh, giving a synopsis of it on here feels silly because everybody listening already knows the movie so well. They're probably living it out in their head right now. From the first, I just really like it because the, in, from the first scene where we see Bill Murray's charisma is kind of setting the stage for the lighthearted vibe that would kind of weave throughout the a theme that could otherwise be fitting for like a horror film. Um, it just makes all the characters that come along after that so endearing. And uh, it wasn't my introduction to these actors, which I'm glad, because you kind of know as you're watching that you're not going to be disappointed by them. And then you get to just kind of sit back and enjoy the ride. I just want to know what your th true thoughts are on Ghostbusters. Do you think it's overrated? I'll, I'll take that first. Um, no, not at all. In fact, if anything, in this day and age, I think it's underrated. In the sense that it's not talked about. I mean, in, in people in our circles, you know, the, the cinephiles and the big movie fans, like, it's a no-brainer. But for me, like, 
the movie works the best for me because of the characters, not the special effects, not, you know, the, the, the ghost or the paranormal part of this. I, I would spend two hours with Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray, you know, Harold Ramis, Ernie Hudson, Rick Moranis, you know, Sigourney Weaver. I would spend two hours with them, with these characters in a completely non-paranormal sense. Like, I think that each one of those characters respectively brings so much to this film. Like, I, I don't just think it's a great paranormal film. I don't, don't just don't think it's a great comedy. I think it's one of the great movies ever made. And I, I'm, I, I, again, so to answer your question, no, not overrated at all. In fact, I haven't seen it in a few years. I did do an episode on it a couple years ago. I need to rewatch this again because you've got me amped up to just want to watch it. And because at the end of the day, this is a really fun, original movie. And I love it. Mike, what are your thoughts on Ghostbusters? Yeah, I mean, I, I would just kind of echo what you guys say. You know, there's been so much drama uh, around uh, kind of Ghostbusters with the remake and just the way certain people have reacted to it that I think a lot of times it's it's a bit easy, even for somebody like me, it's a bit easy to forget that when you just go back and watch Ghostbusters and forget about how it's kind of because I do disagree a bit, Dana, that it's not talked about. I, I feel like it's talked about all the time, uh, but not always in a way that is necessarily great. Uh, but if you just go back and just watch the movie, it is just a really, really good movie. It's really well done. It's really well paced. Uh, the characters are great. The dialogue is hilarious. Um, you know, it's it's a just a, a, a rock solid fantastic movie it's a it's a classic i think it's definitely one that needs to be on our list i i i think it's great that dylan recommended it and literally came up with a theme just to recommend this movie <laughs> pretty much uh, and i will um, say yeah real quick i just wanted to say that this is this is all because my girlfriend opened my eyes and because i had i knew the way the show is and was going to go uh, you know, based on previous episodes. And I, I love the usual, more intellectual approach uh, and kind of looking at things from a different angle instead of just like, you know, the mainstream uh, perspective. But she was like, because I had three other movies selected that still would have been good. But she was like, dude, you just got to be true to yourself and just go with. And even though you had done an episode on it before, Dana, you know, I just I just had to get my get it in there and get my say on it because it really is like you said it's a look into just a room where these people get to work together and it will only happen in that one time it's like what we talked about with blues brothers you know it's the same thing you get all these people that just happen to be uh you know very well i guess they had found fame at, at the time and uh, happen to work together and have such great chemistry and it's again won't happen again yeah, that's the key is it, it won't happen again. Uh, Mike, I'm going to ask you a question. What are your thoughts on the Jason Reitman directed Ghostbusters, which I apparently from what I've been reading and collect me if correct me if I'm wrong, a true sequel to Ghostbusters one and two? Yeah, it, I don't know, man. Um, I'm getting a little. Come I'm on, getting Mike. A little, 
<laughs> I'm getting a little burned out on the like nostalgia. Like, I, I mean, I know this entire show is basically like we love the 80s and 90s, but to a certain extent, I'm getting a little tired of the like people of our generation who are now in power, in creative power, sort of harvesting these things because they they almost uniformly don't work now part of the problem i sort of have is i'm one of the guys that actually liked the remake i thought the the paul feig version uh the paul feig version was was pretty well done it wasn't perfect it wasn't exceptional but it was an enjoyable movie and i just kind of i don't know there's something about the whole thing that doesn't sit right with me i'm not worried about the quality of the movie i think jason reitman's a good director for the most part he's had some misfires but he's also had some very good movies you know it seems interesting from what i've seen so far they certainly seem to be you know I, the thing I'm most concerned about is it really does kind of seem like they're riding the Stranger Things wave, which is already a series that I have some issues with because it's such like nostalgia junk food that which is going to upset a lot of Stranger Things fans. I apologize, but I grew up in the 80s. I've seen all this stuff before. So I don't know. At the end of the day, I'm going to wait for the movie to come out. I try not to come up with too many preconceptions about movies before they come out. So I'll wait for the movie to come out and see. I guess I would just say I have hesitations. Fair enough. Fair enough. That is fair enough because it's so unpredictable these days. Sure. I mean, there's, yeah, it really is. Everybody's got a hand in it and, uh. It's, so it, it's hard to these tell. things are made by committee now. There's not just yes. a, and I, even though Reitman's a, you know, like you said, Mike, a, a somewhat accomplished writer director. I, I don't think he gets, well, I could be wrong, but I don't know if he gets a sole writing credit on this. I mean, there's a formula in place for these, for these big tentpole films. So it should be interesting. But Mike, what do you got for your first pick of volume 19? So for my first pick, when, when Dylan gave us the theme, it's, it's actually the very first movie that I thought of. And, and it, it's kind of, it's sort of similar to Ghostbusters for Dylan in terms of it's a very, very basic movie for anybody that knows me very well. This is an obvious one. It's one I've kind of not recommended just because to me it is one that I feel like is talked about a lot. But as Dylan mentioned, we are a little ahead of it, but we're going into the greatest season of the year, which is for me from October 1st to December 26th. Halloween and Christmas are my two favorite times of year. This is a perfect Halloween movie for me. I watch it every year on Devil's Night, uh, which for those who don't know is the night before Halloween. And it's also been talked about a lot already this year because it is the 25th anniversary of this movie, but it is possibly uh, in terms of importance to my life in my top 10 movies of all time that is 1994's The Crow absolutely a supernatural paranormal movie but not intended to be scary really much more intended to be kind of a kick-ass action movie for those who don't know The Crow is based on a comic book series by James Obar about a musician named Eric Draven uh, who he and his fiance are brutally murdered and a year later Eric is mysteriously brought back to life to uh, wreak bloody revenge on the people that uh, wronged him stars Brandon Lee, who I could do an entire podcast about how much I loved Brandon Lee and, and the tragedy that, that befell him. This, I mean, this is, you know, goth intro 101 movie. If you have even the slightest goth inclinations, you've seen The Crow, you've seen The Crow a bunch, but that doesn't mean much like Ghostbusters. It's not still just a fucking awesome movie and a great time um, and it's a movie that I just love like I said I watch it every year on Devil's Night I'm going to assume both of you have probably seen this one oh yeah well Mike I've seen this movie one time when it came out on home video 
And I don't think I was in the right place or the right mindset when I watched it. What I do remember was loving the soundtrack. And this is, I can't say it's a movie that's fallen through the cracks because I'm well aware of the, the story. I've, I've seen it. I remember a lot about the film, but it's something that for one reason or another, over the course of 25 years, I've never revisited. And there has been times where I'm like, you know what? I'm watching The Crow tonight. Something happens. I don't watch it and it goes out of my mind for a couple of months. Before I turn it over to Dylan, I have a question for you, Mike, about The Crow. After Brandon Lee passed away, the, the studio pumped a, a few more million in to finish the production. Was this always intended to be his breakout film? Because before this, it was Rapid Fire, Showdown in Little Tokyo. These were really direct-to-video films. Like, was this the movie or did it get a bigger audience and a bigger theatrical release because of what happened? I'm curious if you can speak to that. Well, it was always intended to be his breakout. And actually, Rapid Fire got a major theatrical release and, and was relatively theatrically successful. Rapid Fire is a, definitely going to be a stay tuned for this podcast down the road. It was always intended to be his breakout. I don't think there's any question that it, because of what happened, it, it probably got more sort of box office clout. The thing is, a lot of people don't remember, it still only did about 55 million domestically in the US. So it's not like this thing was a huge, massive success when it came out in the theaters. What happened was those that saw it in the theater, those people like me, we couldn't get it out of our system. Uh, you know, and for me, especially because I was already a big Brandon Lee fan. So the movie just fucking wrecked me the first time I saw it because, you know, there's so much about it that can't be separated from what happened to him. And just briefly, for those who don't know, Brandon Lee was uh, accidentally killed on the set of The Crow when a, a whole chain of events went wrong. Uh, there's a lot of books and articles about it. I, I won't get into it here. But, you know, a lot of people couldn't separate that. And then it really is a true sort of cult word of mouth hit that it, it became much, much bigger. You know, for me, I already knew the comics as well. So it was kind of a perfect storm for me when this movie came out. But it's definitely, I think, I think that initial surge is because of what happened to him. I think we're still talking about the movie 25 years later because of what the movie is, uh, not because of what happened. And I will say this. Um, I'll clarify about what you said about Rapid Fire. I, I can only speak to where I was at in Canada because it was right before I moved to the United States. And I know that Rapid Fire didn't get a, at least didn't get a theatrical release where I was. So, Fair enough. so that that's let me clarify that. So, Dylan, what are your thoughts on The Crow? I watched this again recently because... Uh, the Shat the Movies episode. And I can't remember if that one was a, a Patreon episode um, or not. But they went into more detail about, they had a little tangent about, you know, the death of Brandon Lee. And that is such a fascinating, it's one of those kind of like a, a Heath Ledger type thing, even though, you know, Batman would have been a great movie regardless. There's so much like lore behind it, or there's just the, the fact that it, the film had the theme that it did and it was about the supernatural and then you have his death occur and i think that just fueled the popularity and the the almost the cult status that the film has uh, received now the way it was shot i re i remember being very impressed by it. it reminded me of something that maybe like tim miller would be imp uh, would be would be inspired by you know just a lot of uh, that noir look to it 
That was a good pick, Mike. Yeah. I didn't even think of that one. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm impressed. I'm impressed with uh, where we with it, where we're at so far. Like this is good. Like I, these are two films I haven't even thought about. Like when I was like I was contemplating whether or not I was going to do picks, but I'm I'm a little pressed for time today, so I, I said well, we've got to keep this at about an hour or so. But I was kind of mentally putting a list together, and those two films were not. They're great picks. So Dylan, what's your second pick for the episode? All right. So after a previous episode's discussion of Reanimator. <laughs> I was reminded of my favorite Jeffrey Combs performance in a movie uh, directed by Peter Jackson, uh, 1996's Frighteners. Uh, you remember when we talked about that, Mike? Yep. We were talking about Frighteners br- briefly. So after we talked about it, I went back and watched it, and I had so much fun watching this as a – I remember – Going with my mom to Blockbuster Video and renting this, uh, it was a new release at the time, and just like such a fun, I was like, nothing I'd ever seen before. Mostly because I think the visual effects of the time and the cinematography were amazing. Uh, because there was stuff they could do with computers, I guess, that they hadn't done before, and Peter, Jack- Peter Jackson was like, look at this. And after watching it now, for the first time since then, uh, you know, after we talked about it, I went and rewatched it. It's almost distracting, <laughs> those visual effects, because you can tell they're flaunting it a little bit and kind of letting it take uh, center stage. But the storyline is actually pretty good. And I think they undermined the storyline uh, because they were trying to, I don't know, just show off this cool technology. It could actually be a decent, like the concept behind the story could be a decent series on like sci-fi or something like that. So Danny Elfman's doing the score, of course. It feels like he's he's going to do like most of these the movies that we cover on here. But it has that polished sci-fi adventure vibe uh, that at the time was, you know, still pretty new. Uh, it reminded it reminded maybe it was the Michael J. Fox element, but um, there was you know the the camera work and everything w- complete with like this playful orchestral flourishes was reminiscent of back to the future like a zemeckis film but it was you know it was uh, peter jackson but instead of time travel you know we're dealing with travel between the world of the dead and the world of the living and instead of being all tense and scary it's kind of a playful romp you know uh, at times it's pretty hokey but we explore the dynamic between michael j fox and uh, his ability to interact with the dead which comes only after losing his wife in a car accident that he caused. And so this kind of leads to a career where he is a sort of sham paranormal investigator uh, with the help of his three ghost friends who follow him around sort of haunting on command. (laughs) So they cause the haunts and then he exercises them and uh, collects his money. So yeah, these three, the three ghosts, they sort of offer this comedic relief uh, to an otherwise dark storyline in which Jake Busey, which you gotta love, plays the antagonist, and he's just so good at being creepy. It's just that face. But, of course, my favorite is is Jeffrey Combs' character. He plays this extremely obsessive, compulsive FBI agent who vomits every time he hears a woman's voice, like every time a woman raises her voice, he vomits. And he can't ever enter fully in the room if there's a woman present in the room, you just kind of see him deliver his dialogue from outside the door <laughs> in sort of like these whimpering half sentences. And man, that guy, what an actor. He is, is such a good character actor, but in the in the past, in a uh, you know, in his horror past, you'd only seen him kind of play the uh, a similar role. So it was nice to see him in in a role like this one. 
Uh, but there's a nice twist at the end. Uh, it's just a fun movie that shouldn't be taken too seriously or judged too harshly. I would I would recommend watching it at least once if you haven't seen it. Uh, I saw it in the theater, ninety six. That was oh, the nice. that was what I call um that I've, I've said this before on the show. That was sort of the uh, the first summer of Dana at the movies. I was eighteen years old. I had moved out on my own, and I was going to the movies by myself three times a week. And I saw everything in 96 from from may through september i promise you i saw every big release and i remember seeing the frighteners and and honestly not knowing who peter jackson was at the time you know maybe i'd heard the name in passing but i wasn't familiar like i didn't go see it because it was a peter jackson movie i went and saw it because it was a michael j fox film and it looked like it had some great visual effects and i've only seen it that one time dylan like i have to revisit the film but i remember sort of being like you said be struck by the visuals at the time and also finding the story rather engaging and, and it's kind of a mystery kind of a you know what's going on type of thing and you start to understand when when you sort of unravel michael j fox's character a little bit more and you sort of see the tragedy in his life but uh, again i'm gonna bring up something that i have continuously brought up on this show and that is the fact that the frighteners was an r-rated movie that would and that would never happen today that movie would be a PG-13 film no matter what. And it just harkens back to a time when the studios would take a chance. So mm-hmm. I think that's a great recommendation. And uh, I said I want to watch Ghostbusters. I want to watch Frighteners again. Like, I I remember having a good time with that movie. Obviously, it didn't stick with me to the point where I was like, I have to watch it again and again and again. But it was one that I remember having a good time. Mike, what about you? Yeah, I saw it in the theater as well. The one thing I do, the one negative I do kind of want to comment on is something, Dylan, you said about how they kind of let the special effects carry the story. Gee, that's not like Peter Jackson to do that at <laughs> all, right? Yeah. Like, I love, Lord, I love the three Lord of the Rings. Those are unimpeachable in my, in my mind. But, you know, King Kong, The Hobbit, like... Jackson loves his special effects and and this the Frighteners is kind of a good example of both what he does really well which is character work and great acting and great performances and 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 cutting edge special effects but also what he does badly which is letting those special effects control a little too much of the story Um, I think the Frighteners is a lot of fun Uh, Dylan I think you nailed it Jeffrey Combs is by far and away the best part of the movie because he's by far and away the best part of any movie that he's in Um, and this is a great performance from him He's phenomenal in it. I I think Michael J. Fox is good in it. Uh, You know, I was actually aware of who Peter Jackson was because I had seen Dead Alive, a.k.a. Braindead, prior to that. And so he was already on his way up to becoming one of my favorite directors. And so I was really happy to see this. And actually, it didn't do that well at the box office. You know, Dana, you mentioned it's a time when when studios would take a chance on movies like this. Unfortunately, part of the reason they kind of don't is because this didn't do that well. Um, you know, and luckily he rolled from this into Lord of the Rings and the rest is is history because New Line did take a chance on him for Lord of the Rings. But I think it's a lot of fun. I think it's a good movie uh, to kind of just kick back on, say, an October evening and uh, and watch. I don't think it's it's life changing, but I think the performances are good enough and I think that makes it worth watching. So I think it's it's a good recommendation. Excellent. Dylan, any any closing thoughts on the movie? Uh, I just think the storyline had more legs than they didn't, they didn't, you know, give it enough credit. They didn't do enough with it. That's all. But, you know, 
it's just uh, it was fun. It was also kind of fun to see or surprising to see D Wallace in there yeah. in like a small supporting role. All right, Mike, what's your second pick for the episode? So one of the other things we kind of talked about when we were talking about this theme was not just sort of the paranormal, but also like aliens but again not scary so not alien or aliens or anything along those lines and one of the first movies that kind of came to mind is uh it's a 1984 film that is honestly probably going to be one of the weirdest ones on the list it's another cult film but you know if i walked up to somebody and said hey i want to show you a movie where the hero is a physicist neurosurgeon test pilot rock musician (laughs) lead singer of the hong kong cavalier (laughs) Would you want to see that movie? And most of you, I would hope, would say not only yes, but hell yes. So my second recommendation (laughs) is The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. For those who haven't seen it, this is a a sci-fi cult crazy movie about Buckaroo Banzai, who is all of those aforementioned things, who has built a device that allows him to travel into the eighth dimension. Unfortunately, doing so opens a, a doorway to aliens from planet 10 who try and invade Earth. And honestly, I'm not going to say any more about it because this movie is best just taken in on its whole, preferably with some type of additional substance in your body because this thing is, you know, we talk about, Dana, you mentioned with the Frightener Studios taking a chance on movies. I can't believe this got made in 1984, let alone... something like this getting made now. So have either of you seen this one? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I've seen it multiple, multiple times and I'm not going to really talk about the film itself. Uh, look, I, like, I, I don't know. I love the movie so much, but like my favorite part of the movie is just like the end credits, you know, and I'm not going to say what happens at the end credits, but it's just like, just so much fun and i love the musical score and i just love i mean it's a quintessential 80s film mike dylan it's something that would only be made in the 80s i mean it's it's awesome and i'm not going to speak to what happens in the movie but i love peter weller jeff i mean a very young jeff goldblum i mean there's there's so many recognizable faces in this film and it is for lack of a better term bizarre and i say that in a very complimentative way so dylan what do you think of the film yeah i saw this when i was like 12 years old and i can't i can't even remember that much about it mostly because i watched it on one of those uh scramble boxes you know the what do they call those scramblers the cable black boxes whatever at my uncle's house so it kept kind of you know getting wavy at times and i had to go mess with the thing and uh i'm gonna watch it i'm gonna watch it again tonight because i cannot you know i wasn't in a, a place where i could appreciate it the way i would now so I'm kind of glad that I don't have, you know, a, a, a fresh memory of it because I think I'll appreciate it a lot more now. Yeah. yeah, I actually almost think like 12 is probably like the worst age to see it because I saw this when it came out. So I would have been like seven or eight. And, and at that point, like you're just a kid taking all these crazy sights and sounds in. And Dana, you mentioned Peter Weller and Jeff Goldblum. We also need to shout out John Lithgow, literally yeah eating the the scenery not not just chewing it like he's he's opening he's dislocating his jaw and shoving it down his gullet um and then you know when you watch it again as an adult you have all those you're you're more able to appreciate the weird just the absolute weirdness one of the things i do kind of want to recommend you know we always recommend how to see these but if you happen to have either the dvd or the blu-ray there is a commentary from a couple of the people involved essentially in character and it's <laughs> it's delightful um because this this movie was supposed to launch a sort of whole pulp 
fiction series. Um, it's heavily influenced by the old Doc Savage books. Um, Doc Savage, the Man of Bronze, for people who don't know, is an old, like a 30s pulp hero. And this was supposed to kind of launch a whole universe. In fact, it's often cited as one of the most famous teasers that never followed through because the end of the credits say Buckaroo will return in Buckaroo Bonsai versus the World Crime League. And this movie did not do well at all. Uh, and so that never happened, um, which to which we're all very, very worse off for it. The world is worse off for it. We are, we are dealing with the problems we have in the world now because we did not get Buckaroo Bonsai <laughs> versus the World Crime. Um, so, sorry, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, no, I was just going to ask, so because that world never happened, you know how Disney right now, especially they had just had D23 and all this stuff and they're announcing all of these uh, shows. If they announced a Buckaroo Banzai reboot of the entire world or like a series of, of films surrounding Buckaroo Banzai, uh, Buckaroo Banzai, would you support it? Yes, if we got more Buckaroo, I would support it. Even if it was from Disney, I would I would follow the that, you know, monster to hell for more Buckaroo Bonds. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's awesome. All right, Dylan, what you got for your third pick of the episode? You know what I got for my third pick, guys. I know. I, I have a guess. I have a guess, but I but I'm not going to guess. It's it's 1988. All yeah, right. Yeah, I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> I, mean, I had I this is okay. This is my write-off episode, okay? I'm just going to I had to get it out there and get it over with with these two. Uh, but yeah, Beetlejuice. Yeah. Um like Edward Scissorhands, it's a goth fantasy Tim Burton wet dream. It's uh but except with way more props, less heart and a quirky sensibility. Uh I mean, truly the quintessential Burton and Elfman movie in my mind and something that makes uh, even the most adult viewer think like a juvenile and actually enjoy it <laughs> for a brief while. Uh, and it doesn't matter that it doesn't really make any sense as most things in the 80s. I mean, it's the product of the late 80s when it seemed like movie makers were just given carte blanche to share their trademark styles, even if the viewers... Uh, well, yeah, with more viewers than ever before in cinema, and even if no one else involved in the in the making process truly knew what the end result would really be like, because no studio entity would have ever been able to comprehend how bizarre the outcome would be anyway, in, in Tim Burton's case, that guy's brain. And so it's just impressive. You know, you got Alec Baldwin, Gina Davis, um, you know, they play this couple and uh, they die, but they don't know they're dead. And then they realize that uh, they've got these new people that have bought their house and moved in. Catherine O'Hara and uh, Jeffrey Jones nine times. <laughs> and uh, we've and so they're trying the rest of, you know, Beetlejuice shows up and he's this he's this. Uh, oh, I guess you could call him an exterminator as well uh, of the living and uh, helps to try and try and evict evict the new uh, living that have taken over their house. But to me, it's really a testament to the perfect storm that Tim Burton, and I will say before I say this, I'm not necessarily a Tim Burton fan. You know, I, I just think that he is a, he's a visionary that I'm glad exists. But uh, I think it's a testament to what he's created with the cast and crew at the time. I mean, some of his later stuff, well, let's, I, I'm not even, not that impressed anymore. But anyway, the cast and crew at the time, because it's it's hard for any storyteller to effectively funnel their vision through a wide array of like coworkers, you know, that vary 
uh, from their mindset to mindset with satisfaction and get an equally diverse audience to adopt that vision. But I feel like it would be more difficult to communicate a hodgepodge vision like Tim Burton's that has no rules and no order and is so unique, uh, which still exudes this confidence of knowing itself so well and being so true to itself so consistently. And he managed to do it. So whether you identify with uh, or like that world or not, you still know it the moment you see it. And I think that's the, you know, that's the accomplishment there. It's also, it's also a fun look at life and death from a different perspective and that, uh, you know, the living can be just as strange and haunting and difficult to get rid of as the dead. Oh, also, if you get a chance to look up the Harry Belafonte uh, Deo music video from the movie, I would recommend it. It is so weird. Yeah. <laughs> but what are your thoughts? Have you? I mean, I was about to say, have you guys seen this? <laughs> so, so every for for as long as I can remember, uh, I, I go to the movies every year on my birthday, and th- that trend started when I was seven or eight. It was something that my parents always did, and this was my uh, this was my tenth birthday movie so i was i was 10 years old when this movie came out and they took me to see it and (laughs) it's a little much for a 10 year old to process i can tell you that look i've seen the movie six seven times over the past few years and look here's here's what i can say it's the michael keaton show i mean the guy's incredible in the movies absolutely incredible and there's one thing that always sort of struck with me when i whenever i look at beetlejuice and that is this was tim burton's second film after Wee's big adventure 15 million dollar budget Thank God this movie was a success because I genuinely feel like if this movie had flopped, we wouldn't be discussing Tim Burton because this film is so off the wall. But it made $70, $80 million, which is, you know, on a $15 million budget is, is great. And I, I agree with you, Dylan. I'm, I'm a f- not the biggest fan of Burton, but th- when he's on it and he's He's, he's effective and I think he, he's really good. But that being said, like, thank God this movie was a success. If you've never seen it, listeners, just watch it for Michael Keaton. You're going to be, uh, you're going to be, I won't say you're pleasantly surprised because he's one of our great actors, but he's amazing in this film. Mike? So I really like something that you said, Dylan, about you're not a huge Tim Burton fan, but you think he's a visionary and you're glad we have him. I, because I've kind of gone on record as not being a huge Tim Burton fan either, but I think that sums it up perfectly. I don't always love Tim Burton but I'm always glad we have Tim Burton, recently less so. Now, that being said, Beetlejuice happens to be one of my favorite Tim Burton movies. I love this one. I think it's I think it's Tim Burton firing on all cylinders. Every sort of quirky thing that he does uh, that in a lot of cases can be really bad, Dark Shadows, for instance, uh, comes together here at, at the top of its its game. Michael Keaton's fantastic. Uh, Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis are great. Um, Winona Ryder is just delightful in this movie. So um, I, I really think this is a great recommendation. It's definitely one of my favorite Tim Burton movies. It's probably it and Batman Returns are probably my favorite Tim Burton movies. So, uh, well, I actually, I shouldn't say that. Ed Wood is by far my favorite. But nonetheless, this is a great recommendation. I haven't watched this movie in years. I think I might need to rewatch it here soon because this has got me thinking about it and thinking about how how much I do enjoy this one. Awesome. Any Any closing thoughts, Dylan? Um, I was just going to say, you know, there's always the rumors of the reboot and we hear it every so often. I hope it doesn't happen because like you said, Dana, it's just, we need to keep it 
right here. We need to just see Michael Keaton creating that character, which he did. You know, that was like him creating it in front of the camera in the moment, it seems like. And Winona Ryder doing the same thing. And then the chemistry between them, it's irreplaceable. It shouldn't be messed with. Everybody should see Edward Scissorhands. Or, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I agree with that, too. Everyone should see Everybody that. Should see- <laughs> I should have just ended it there. Everybody should see Edward Scissorhands. Uh, everybody should... Ev- Everybody should see Beetlejuice, you know, like just for that reason. Awesome. All right, Mike, what's your third and final pick for this episode? So my third and final pick is is kind of a maybe a little bit of a cheat. But uh, I was kind of racking my brain trying to think of a third one. And I, a couple of movies ran through my head. But my wife and I rewatched Endgame last night. And that got me thinking about. You know, as as we know, listeners of the show know, I'm a huge comic book fan. I'm a huge comic book movie fan. And again, as I mentioned with Buckaroo Banzai, one of the things we kind of talked about was in addition to the supernatural aliens and, and, you know, but again, non-scary aliens. And that got me thinking about the most important alien ever in the comic book superhero universe. And so my third pick is going to be still one of the greatest comic book movies of all time, 1978's Superman the Movie from director Richard Donner. Now, I got to imagine most people have seen this, but maybe not, because this is one, like we've talked about, Dana, that younger generations may not have been invested in the way some of us were. So if you haven't seen it, let me tell you, this thing sets the template for every comic book movie that you love, regardless of whether it's Marvel, whether it's DC, whether it's Endgame, whether it's, you know, Batman, whatever. None of that exists without this movie and this movie working as well as it does. It's it, it is the Superman origin story. Alien from the planet Krypton is sent to Earth, adopted by a kind couple in Smallville, Kansas, named Clark Kent, grows up to become a reporter and discovers that he has all these powers uh, and decides to become a champion for humanity. And what makes Superman so goddamn fantastic? And what made me think about this as I was watching Endgame is, regardless of what you think of Endgame, one of the things that I think most people can agree on is is marvel is fantastic at casting right robert downey jr embodies iron man the big one for me is chris evans is captain america at this point it's going to be almost impossible to think of somebody else playing steve rogers well there has been no actor that has embodied a role the way christopher reeve embodied superman um If you haven't seen his performance in this movie and you haven't seen this movie, you are really missing out on, I think, one of the all time great performances in in movies. Uh, I don't want to it. It's Superman, so I'm not too worried about spoilers, but there is a scene that I want to call out for people who haven't seen it when you watch it, where when he first uh, sort of unveils himself as Superman and he he has to to go into uh, this bank because a phone booth doesn't work anymore because it's the 70s, or it goes through these spinning vestibule doors to change. And just the way Reeve changes his posture, his voice, his stature. It it is one of the most amazing physical performances I think I've ever seen in my life. Again, I'm assuming both of you have seen this one, but what do you guys think? So, I mean, it's the greatest, I agree, it's the the greatest comic book film ever made. It's one of my favorite films of all time. And I'm going to tell you why and, and Mike, I'm a little like, ah, he's going to bring up the same scene that I was about to cite as why I love this movie. Because 
this film takes its time. This is the definition of a slow burn. I mean, what are we, like 45 minutes, 50 minutes before we see Superman on screen yeah. for the first time? And by that point, you're so heavily invested in what's going on that when he makes his debut, like I get chills just thinking about it. Like when he, when he, I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't seen it, but you know exactly what I'm talking about. Like that yeah. entire sequence is, I've seen the movie a hundred times and it's so tense. And, and you, that John Williams score yeah. is, yeah. Like it's, yep. it's incredible. And, and let's not forget Gene Hackman, incredible in the movie. Ned Beatty, incredible in the movie. Margot Kidder, the perfect Lois Lane. I mean, it is, and it has a satisfying ending. And, and, you know, I've, I've done an episode on this one where I've looked at the history of, you know, the first two films. And it's a fascinating story. If you look, if, if I encourage everyone to, to go behind the scenes and, and, and look at the, the struggles that Richard Donner had and ultimately why he was replaced, you know, halfway through the production of Superman 2. But we don't have to get into that now. But Mike, it's, it's the great recommendation. One of the great recommendations that you've made. Like it's, it's one of my all time favorite films. Dylan? Yeah. I mean, the way your brain works, Mike, with these, you still managed to cover the paranormal element here. He's technically an alien. Uh, and great pick. And I, I just, as you were talking, I pulled up, uh, you know, the hero's journey, you know, the concept that we've all seen where, you know, you have the call to adventure, supernatural aid, uh, you know, the, the mentor, the helper, uh, the, the revelation and, and the abyss and, and, you know, the uh, death and return, transformation, and then return and then, you know, ultimately rise to greatness. It's all covered in this movie, but not in the way that it had been done for, you know, a hundred years prior to that. Like you said, it creates that template for, even though it's a DC film, the reason Marvel films uh, are so much more successful and relatable to viewers is because, like this one, it includes those, it's got the comedic relief, you know, it's got the um, character development, but it doesn't overdo it to distract from the overall storyline. And uh, it, it, the ending is great, but it's not in that uh, saccharine, overly heroic uh, predictable way. And if you haven't, yeah, if, if somebody's listening that's young enough that hasn't seen this, pretend you haven't seen any superhero films and go and watch this uh, and it will increase your appreciation for every other superhero film film ever made well said well said mike any closing thoughts on superman yeah just just a couple um i i love what you guys said you know one of the things that that Donner had to really accomplish and and I know you did an episode on it Dana but I still much like Ghostbusters I still wanted to recommend it anyway um is he had to take what is ostensibly this incredibly cheesy character and bring him into the 70s much like what Joe Johnston had to do with Captain America you know and they both did it equally well by embracing the fact that really powerful people who do the right thing aren't cheesy you know, uh, yes. it's been said yeah. about Captain America, but I think they do it well here, too, that the thing is, is Superman doesn't change. He changes the world around him. You know, he molds the world to be kinder and nicer and better. And that's just for me, when it comes to superheroes, that's what always resonates with me. And then the other thing, yeah, for people who are younger, look, if you watch this, it's a movie from 1978. The special effects aren't endgame worthy right but for those of us that grew up in the late 70s early 80s the fact that they really did make 
a man look like he could fly. I cannot impress upon you how amazing that was to see. Because before this movie, we got, you know, George Reeves jumping out of, you know, from outside of the frame to show that he was flying. And here we have him, you know, flying into outer space. Like, in the special effects still hold up. For the most part, they're composite, um, so you can see a little bit of the the composite lines and stuff like that. But they still hold up, especially if you get a really, you know, you get it on blue or or you know, you get it on the the remastered Blu-ray. It just looks beautiful. I, I really I love this movie so much. I hope everybody who hasn't seen it does check it out. Outstanding. That was great. All right, gentlemen, fantastic picks as always. This was a this one was a lot of fun. So what we like to do at the end of each episode is we like to let the listeners know where they can find the movies that we were discussing. So, Mike, I'll turn it over to you first. All right. So, The Crow is currently streaming on Netflix. Uh, So, again, if you have a Netflix subscription, no reason not to watch it if you haven't seen it. Buckaroo Banzai, even more so no reason. If there is a free ad-supported streaming service out there, it is on that service. So, the Roku channel, Tubi, YouTube, Vudu, uh, Sling, even Pluto TV, you you can watch it on any of those. As long as you don't mind ad supported, I would also shout out because I try to with physical media shout factory put out a really nice Blu-ray a couple years ago. It's got a lot of really fun special features, including that one I talked about where there's the commentary where they're they're in character and acting like this is a real document that happened in 1984. Uh, Superman is streaming for rental uh, or purchase on all major services. It is streaming on a service that I haven't had a chance to talk about yet. uh, If you have a subscription, which is the DC Universe uh, service. If you like comic book movies, uh, obviously, specifically DC, DC Universe is a pretty great service. They have Almost every DC movie and animated TV show you could want, including some originals uh, like Titans and Doom Patrol and Swamp Thing. They also have thousands and thousands of comics uh, that you can read for free with your subscription price. And it's only about five bucks a month. So I, I really do recommend everybody sign up for it for a month, watch Superman, read some comics, and then decide if you want to uh, keep it going. I've got it. I think it's pretty great, sir. All right, Dylan, how about your selections for today? Blockbuster video. <laughs> no, I, uh, I, wa- I watch everything on um, Amazon Prime Video, but it is out there on all the uh, streaming services. Those are, I mean, come on, guys. It's Ghostbusters and Beetlejuice, yeah. for crying out loud. <laughs> yeah, they're out there. Awesome. Same with Brighteners. Awesome. All right, Dylan, if people want to follow you on social media, how can they do that? Uh, at Listen to Look on uh, Instagram and Twitter. Excellent. And Mike, if people want to follow you on social media? I am at Hibachi Justice on Twitter. Uh, I am also at Hibachi Justice on Letterboxd, where if you follow me there, you will find our ongoing updating list of the 20th Century Movie Club. So you can go back and see all the movies that we recommended uh, in past episodes and kind of keep a running tally as you catch up and watch all the things we're recommending. Excellent. All right. And if you want to follow the show on Twitter, it's at Dana Buckler Show. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Dana Buckler. The Instagram account is at the Dana Buckler Show, and it is under construction right now, but I am putting together the website, and the domain name on that is thedanabucklershow.com, and it is up and running right now. It's still heavily under construction, but I'm starting to put little categories in there. So if you like the 20th Century Movie Club, it's got its own dedicated page. If you like the Movie Theater Rants, it's got its own dedicated page, filmmaker interviews, and so on. So I invite the listeners to check that out. If you want to email the show with questions or comments, you can do so at thedanabucklershow at gmail.com. So Dylan, thank you again, my friend. I know we're going to have you back soon. Thank you. 
And Mike, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. And my name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.